Right. We're back on air. Welcome to episode three of Once Upon a Time in the Ashes with me, Graham Barrett. Back on air and back on the hunt for the One Ashes Test Wonders. It took us five years to get from Keith Slater's solitary Ashes Test against the Poms in 1959 to Ken Taylor's first and last appearance against the Aussies in 1964. The jump to find our next cricketer, who played in just the One Ashes Test, is a mere skip rather than a Lynn Davis-esque leap into sport and immortality. We're still in 1964, we're still in the same Ashes series, we've moved from the third test at Headingley to the fourth test at Old Trafford. At the top of the hit parade, we've moved from It's Over by Roy Orbison to A Hard Day's Night by The Beatles. And we'll hear soon in the main feature about how Fred Rumsey was working like a dog in this distinctly unfriendly test match for bowlers. The pitch was possibly the best pitch I ever played on. Conditions were very good, but for some strange reason, known only to the manufacturers of the cricket balls, the first, I think it was three new balls we got, didn't swing. More from Fred soon, plus a special guest who knows him very well. But before we get into the heat of battle, don't forget you can email the show, cricket at onceuponatimeintheashes.com. You can listen wherever you feel most comfortable, Podbean, Spotify, Apple... YouTube, Stitcher, or you can wallow in more Ashes nostalgia on the website, onceuponatimeintheashes.com. Worth a look for Ken Taylor's superb portraits of Brian Close and Fred Truman, if nothing else. We'll keep Mr Rumsey on ice for a moment while we consider another One Ashes test wonder who would go on to play a pivotal role in Fred's career. A man who became better known for the influence he exerted over cricket after his playing career rather than during his time in the middle. Doug Insole made his test debut in 1950 against the West Indies, but he had to wait until 1956 before being given a chance to write his name into Ashes folklore. He found it hard to establish himself in the side, as the cricket writer and historian Stephen Chalk can explain. In England, he played four tests in four different series, He never had two tests in a row. He got picked and dropped, picked and dropped, picked and dropped. Doug himself was fairly phlegmatic about this dubious honour, as we can hear in this old interview from the Essex Cricket Archives. No trivial pursuits. Who was the England player who played four times for England and was dropped every time? I mean, there's all this fuss goes on these days about dropping a bloke after one match. It happened to me four times. Um, No, I mean, I, I... don't want to be unduly modest, but I always felt I was quite fortunate to be picked. I mean, there was one year when I was, you know, when I was getting loads of runs when I felt I was very unfortunate to be dropped. I think it was stupid to drop me, to be honest. I was in 55 against South Africa. So how did his big break for the 1956 Ashes series come about? Here's Stephen again. 56 turned into that wonderful summer where Laker destroyed the Australians at Old Trafford and we won the Ashes for the third time in a row. In the first two matches of the series, the batting... The England batting had been rather suspect. For the Headingley test, they decided to shake up the team a bit. So they dropped Tom Graveney, they dropped Willie Watson, and they looked to bring in one more batsman and to play one fewer bowler. They brought in Alan Oakman for his debut, the Sussex batsman stroke off spinner. They brought in Doug Insole, 
who'd been in great form earlier in the summer, but had just hit a rather bad patch of form before being selected. The selectors met at Bath Cricket Club, I believe, and one of the selectors, Cyril Washbrook, was asked to leave the room while they discussed whether they should recall him to play for England, uh, having not played for England for several years, and he was brought back at the age of 41 to play in the Headingley Test, which created quite a bit of derision in the newspapers. So England went in with three new batsmen in the liner, Oakman, Washbrook, Insult, batting at three, five and six. Now on the first day, England were 17 for three, with Richardson, Cowdery and Oakman all dismissed cheaply at the start. So Doug Insull at number six is padding up very soon after the start, waiting to go into bat as Cyril Washbrook steps out for his test match return to bat with Peter May. And there then followed this fairy tale day where the recalled Cyril Washbrook batted till close of play for 90 not out. Peter May scored a century and Doug Insull spent the day with his pads on. And this is how Doug would describe that weight in his autobiography. I found that the nervous tension which I'd built up earlier in the day kept leaving me so that I was lulled into a state of dreamy complacency until somebody nearly got out. When I was jerked sharply back into an appreciation of my responsibilities, I kept blowing hot and cold all day. Doug didn't get to bat at all that day. Locke was sent in as night watchman when Peter May was finally dismissed. Doug had to take his nervous tension to bed with him and psych himself up all over again. The following day, when he did go into bat, Cyril Washbrook sadly got out for 98. The pitch was starting to prove more difficult, as it would do, because Laker and Locke took 18 wickets between them in the match, so that England won by an innings. Doug did not play very well, poked around for about half an hour, got five, and was not picked for the next test. And in his book, written long before he joined the selection panel, he wrote, as a general principle, I am sure that if a player is worthy of selection, he should have more than one game, unless he's purely and simply and recognisably a stopgap. Doug did go on the 56-57 to tour to South Africa, scoring his one and only Test century, and appeared in the first Test of the following summer against the West Indies. However, he was bowled by Ramadan in both innings, and his Test career was over. But his influence over cricket was only just beginning. He was England tour manager on the trips to Australia in 78-79 and 82-83, when a certain David Gower was introducing his unique brand of fun, style and excellence to the Ashes cause. We called him the Inspector. Willis, Willis nicknamed him Inspector, a little bit sort of Clouseau-like. He was anything but Clouseau-like in his modus operandi. I mean, he was a, a very strict and efficient manager. But he did have a good sense of humour, very dry. I did test him once or twice as a player on tour. I did test his disciplinary powers by doing stupid things. And by and large, though, he would be you know, firm and commanding, um, but understanding. So we got on pretty well with Doug. The same could not be said of two high-profile players of the 60s, who found themselves on the wrong side of Doug's judgment and favour during his role as chairman of selectors. Let's hear more from Doug during that Essex Cricket Archive interview. 
I mean, I regret obvious things like having to drop Ken Barrington for scoring a slow hundred, having to tell him, you know, lovely bloke, and we, be, you know, we were great friends. We, uh, we remain great friends, but in that situation, if you feel a bloke's not doing it, you've got to do something about it. You know, that's not easy. And similarly, Jeffrey Boycott, actually. I mean, um, as the sort of chairman of states, you become, you know, involved with your players inevitably, and if you have to do something of that sort, which is obviously going to hurt them, it's something that you regret having to do, but you don't necessarily feel it's wrong to do it. Just something that has to be done. It's high time we heard from today's main guest, Fred Rumsey, and find out how his cricketing path crossed with ducks. But as way of an introduction, let's give a formal welcome to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes to a man who knows Fred just about as well as anyone in cricketing circles. He even calls him Dad. Ashes hero and one of the finest cricketers of all time, David Gower. David was kind enough to speak to me recently and I asked him when he first came into contact with Fred Rumsey. Who knows? I remember, I do remember listening to him once speak after a, a dinner somewhere in the wilds of Leicestershire. Might even have been in the wilds of Rutland, but it was a, you know, a club dinner or something like that. It seemed miles away from anywhere. Fred has always had a wealth of good stories and he loves telling them. So it was the first time I'd seen anyone really speak at length, and I mean at length, <laughs> because he, <laughs> he went on for quite some time. Very entertaining. I mean, so it was, it was, they were all good stories, uh, and he remembers them well and tells them well. Um, but all I remember thinking at the end of it is, well, you know, I'd quite like to go home now. <laughs> Fred was clearly an excellent host. If you saw Fred at Chateau Fred, it was a glass of champagne to start with, followed by another one and the rest of it. But Fred was also a trusted sounding board and guiding hand for David. Early on in his test career, when he was a bit low on confidence with his batting, Fred set up a dinner with the Australian great Greg Chappell. We were in Nottingham at the time, and he'd known Greg from Greg's days at Somerset. And so he suggested to, well, to me and to John Holmes, who uh, has been my age, friend and agent for 40 odd years now, he suggested that we have a bit of dinner there and just talk about being a test cricketer. It was fascinating because Greg, obviously, as a potential opponent, very unusual thing to arrange that sort of coming together where one great player, especially from Australia, hands down a bit of personal wisdom to another possibly mm. decent player of the future as a friendly gesture. And Greg was great. And I mean, I've always had a huge respect for Greg ever since. So when I did play against him, you know, we got on well. I've, you know, I speak with him now and again so my respect for Greg went up enormously on the back of that night but it's it, it was sort of typical Fredism in the sense that already that sort of avuncular paternal relationship had developed I mean I've called him dad he's called me son for 40 odd years now so and he's got others in the same in the same sort of collection people like Chris Cowgy, Jeff Miller you know there's that sort of all part of his slightly ersatz extended family you know, he, he does engender that sort of loyalty. It's just, it's just good to know. So anyway, Fred, Fred put it all together. We had a very successful dinner. Greg basically took stage towards the end of it and sort of a few truisms, a few pieces of wisdom were handed down. As ever with these things, you go away thinking, well, first of all, that was very special. I had a chance to talk to someone like Greg like that before I really got to know him in any other sense. And very interesting, just as things to think about. There was one piece of wisdom which... Greg said when he started, whenever he started an innings, he, in his mind, he tried to play with the inside edge. That implies covering a little bit of movement away from the, the bat, using the pad as a second line of defence, 
Uh, mm. Otherwise, you're leaving a massive gap there. But trying to sort of play with the inside half of the bat, not not just the edge, but you're trying to play with the inside half of the bat. So, an adjustment of you know no more than a couple of inches while he got himself in, and then when you're in, then you play with the, the proper part of the bat. Something like that, I would never ever have thought of if I'd had 200 careers. Thank you to David Gareth for that insightful introduction. It's now time to bring Dad into the attack. Fred Rumsey was born in the East End of London in 1935. He was a seriously quick left-arm bowler for Worcestershire, Somerset, Derbyshire and England. He played 180 first-class matches and took 580 wickets at 20.29. He took five wickets in an innings 30 times and 10 in a match on five occasions. He played five tests for England, taking 17 wickets at 27.11. His one Ashes test came in 1964 at Old Trafford. He also found time to form the first Cricketers' Union, which became the hugely important Professional Cricketers' Association. His autobiography, Sense of Humour, Sense of Justice, was published in 2019. Fred, welcome to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. Thank you. What has driven you in cricket and life? I wanted to play for England. That drove me as far as cricket is concerned. I wanted to be reasonably successful at everything I did, but with cricket, that was slightly different. I was far more competitive. I wanted to achieve a result, and I achieved what what I wanted to do. I didn't care about the security of having a job because I knew I was always capable of doing something. How did you first get into cricket when you were a young boy? I grew up with a bat and a ball in my hand. But before the war, my father used to play every weekend and he'd take me with him. He's the one that instilled the love for the game in me. I never knew what it was like not to be involved with cricket. By the time I was 12, I was playing with 18-year-olds. And there were plenty of future sporting stars in your neighbourhood, weren't there? Bobby Moore lived in the next road from me. His garden sort of virtually backed onto mine. I used to play in the park with him. We both went to the same school. They predicted that I would have a good soccer career and he would have a good cricket career. He was a very good cricketer, actually. I think he played school's cricket at uh, international level. Let's move things on to your cricket career now. You played second 11 cricket for Essex. And then your job with Founds Gloves took you to Worcester and Worcestershire cricket. And at the end of the 59 season, they offered you a contract, didn't they, to turn professional. What happened next? I decided to give up my job. At that time, I was earning just under 2000 a year for a job that paid me 300 quid a, a season. And so I had a big cut. I was happy to do that. So you didn't think twice about that? That was quite a straightforward decision? Yes. My managing director was more upset than I was. And he left my position open at the company for uh, two years, just in case I changed my mind. How did the move to Somerset come about? Well, Worcestershire fired me. The skipper at the time was a man called Joe Lister, the skipper of the second of them. He told the committee he, he didn't think... I had any talent to be able to play first-class cricket. But he was quite happy with me playing in second-level cricket. 
And so I joined the Birmingham League and played for Kidderminster. And in the Kidderminster side at that time was a, a former England spinner called Roy Tattersall. He noticed with me that I wasn't swinging the ball. He said, with your action, you should be easily swinging it without any problem because I was particularly side on. So he had a look at my grip and he said, well, you'll never swing the ball holding the ball like that. It's look as if you don't want to let it go. So he made me hold the ball a lot looser. I started swinging the ball in the nets, which was quite amazing. Well, in the first game I played with the armoury given to me by Roy Tattersall, I got four wickets in the first and seven in the second. So I got 11 in the match. And of course, they immediately wanted me back on the start, which I refused. And they pressed. I said, well, I'll come back on the start as long as you guarantee me a certain number of first-team games. And they weren't prepared to do that. Somerset had heard that I had made this request. And their skipper, who at the time was Harold Stevenson, contacted me and said, we would allow you to play in the first team for a period if you joined us. And they offered me terms on those bases. After which, in Somerset case, they gave me a cap. I'd taken 80 wickets in the first season. And there was talk of me then being picked to play for England. Willie Watson wanted me to play, but Doug Insole didn't. He didn't think I had enough experience. And so that year, in that year, I didn't play for England, but I did play for England next season, which was 1964. Okay, well, that's a nice segue into 1964, because that's when you appeared in the Ashes, as you said. At the start of the season, did you think you were in with a chance of playing in the Ashes? Oh, I thought I was in a chance of playing for England, because I was one of the few quick bowlers constantly getting wickets. Uh, You took five wickets against the Australians in May as well, didn't you, for Somerset? What do you remember about that match? I remember putting O'Neill on his backside. Yeah, I bowled very well against them at Taunton. They weren't too happy with the left-arm overs. I was exceeding 90 miles an hour. I was about 92, 93 miles an hour. I think I was the quickest left-armer in England, without a doubt. You didn't appear in the Ashes series until that fourth test. Did you follow the first three tests, and what did you make of the series up to that point? Well, there were a whole series of different bowlers appearing. And it was a terrible weakness of the England selection at that time. I mean, the Aussies came over with a group of people and and they virtually played the same team throughout the whole year. By that fourth test, England had already played 15 different players. They ended up that particular year, that Ashes year, playing 20 different people. That, That doesn't all well for good cricket, just because a man doesn't perform well in one particular test doesn't mean he's not going to perform well in another. Once I've established he's a test player and he has that ability, sometimes he's not going to do well. But the other countries tend to to stay with their players. The greatest bowler we have had in recent years in this country was Fred Truman. And yet he didn't play regularly for England. They often used to drop him. Fred Truman was left out of the fourth test where you appeared, wasn't he? He was, and he got picked for the next one. Last time on Once Upon a Time in the Ashes, we featured Ken Taylor. Uh, He played in the third test at Leeds, but was left out for Manchester. 
Did you think that was justified? Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't think any of that dropping. I mean, Norman Gifford was left out. Ken T Taylor and Fred Truman were left out of the test. And, and Jack Flavel, uh, that was at Leeds, they were left out before the Manchester test. And then they bring in John Price and me and Cartwright as the three bowlers. Now, we're completely alien to the whole situation of that year. I was dropped for the next test, and I know Statham was brought in. Mortimer was dropped. Edric was dropped. They were almost tossing up a bloody coin and saying, heads or tails, does he stay in or does he, does he, yeah. do we drop him? How did you find out that you were selected for the fourth test? We were playing um, Leicester at obscure ground of theirs. Hinkley, I think it was, wasn't it? Hinkley, that's right. I heard it on the radio on Sunday morning. They, re they release the, the test match side always on a Sunday morning. That's the first you knew that you'd been picked. And how did you celebrate? We got on the champagne at lunchtime. The whole team were delighted for me and the whole team celebrated with me. OK, well, let's look at the test day by day. Australia won the toss and they decided to bat. So that pitched you straight into the action, didn't it? What, what were the conditions like for bowling? What was the pitch like? The pitch was possibly the best pitch I ever played on. Conditions were very good. But for some strange reason, known only to the manufacturers of the cricket balls, the first, I think it was three new balls we got, didn't swing. And the conditions weren't particularly favourable for swinging. But you'd think they'd swing just a little, but they didn't. It's normal to think of players being nervous, especially those making their test debuts. But you also say in your book that the umpire Fred Price was very nervous. His hands were shaking. It was only his second test, I think. I put the bells on for him quietly as I could without people <laughs> noticing. Having done that favour for him, he never gave me a favour for the next two and a half days. That's the thanks you got. <laughs> Ted Dexter was your captain. What advice did he give you and what did you make of him as a skipper? Well, when you get picked to play for England, people don't really start telling you how to bowl. You know, aim to bowl short outside the off stump of, uh, as a policy so he can set his field. England tend to expect their test players to understand what they've got to do. I liked Ted very much. I was a great fan. He was a very, very talented player. I wouldn't say he was the best skipper I played under, but he wasn't a bad skipper. I mean, I remember we, he went out to bat when we went to bat, and he said, if anyone sees me play a square cut, you can kick me up the backside. And we all, we all hoped he'd play a square cut, but he didn't. Like Compton used to sweep, he used to square cut wide balls, and he... It was his weakness, and he'd get out. And, it, and he was in, determined, with Australia having scored 600 and whatever, he was determined to build a big score, and he did in the end. Now, of course, the Australian captain was the big run-maker in the game, or one of the big run-makers in the game. There were so many runs scored. He uh, scored 100 on the first day. And then you went out for dinner with him, didn't you? Was this encouraged? Yeah. No, I got, I got it in the neck from the selectors. Uh, he was a mate of mine. That was the point. It wasn't going to make any difference to me how I bowled at him. I had lots of friends that I played against in cricket. And if anything, they suffered more than most. 
So no, I was, it wouldn't have affected the way I bowled at him, but somehow the selectors seemed to think it would and objected to the fact of me fraternising with the skipper of the opposition. Now on day two, the Aussies piled on even more runs. Simpson carried on his merry way, didn't he? England only took two wickets on that day. And that evening, the chairman of selectors, Walter Robbins, arrived and he spoke to you, didn't he? What happened there? Oh, he accused me of bowling too short. Having said, only just prior, he wasn't able to watch any of the cricket because he'd travelled all day. <laughs> then he said, I, I think you bowled too short. I reminded him that he was been travelling all day and hadn't seen any cricket. So how did he know? Which didn't go down. It went down like a lead balloon. Do you think that affected selection in later times? Well, he, did, he, he didn't remain chairman of the selectors much longer. I think that was his penultimate game. The following year, Doug Insole took over. Day three came along. You say in your book that you felt like the poor relation at a rich man's table as they were racking up the runs. But day three was when you, you took your couple of wickets, didn't you? Tell us about those. I don't know what new ball it was. It must have been the fourth. And it was the first one that swung. In that over, my first over, I got two wickets. Wally Grout and Tommy Beavers, I think. And so I ended up with two for 99 of 35 overs. In fact, I, was, I think I was the only mainstream bowler that didn't get 100 up. You had a guest at the cricket that day, didn't you? I what did. Tell yes. us about that. Women weren't allowed in the pavilion. I had a guest coming. I could hear all this kerfuffle going on. And she was being ushered out of the front row of the men's pavilion where she shouldn't have been. (laughs) Did you deliberately give her the wrong instructions? No, I wouldn't have done that. She was capable of getting herself into trouble without me. The other incident on the Saturday was when Ted Dexter was out but not out for 70. Can you remember what happened there? Yeah, he hit the ball into the covers and Peter Burge caught it. Then then when he caught it, he wasn't sure that he caught it. And he said to Sid Buller, I don't think I caught that, Sid. And Sid said to him, well, you're the only one that's going to be able to tell me, did you catch him or didn't you? And he said, no, right. Ted is three quarters of the way to the pavilion. And so they called him back. And then he went on and got 160 on. I don't know whether that would happen in a test match these days. Were you impressed by that display of sportsmanship? Yes, but, but I knew the Aussies to be like that. They were sporting people. Back to the test match. So day five... And I think this shows what a batsman's paradise this was. It wasn't until day five that you finally got a turn to bat. You made three not out, but there was a world record in the offing, wasn't there? Sonny Rabbitin's world record was 98 overs in a test innings. Tommy Beavers had bowled 94 when I went to the wicket. I said to Tommy, do you want a world record, Tommy? And he said, well, how can we do that? And I said, well, I'll have a word. There's nothing on this game. You know, it's only about half an hour to go. So I'll have a word with Sport and get him and to play down the line. And we'll play down the line until you've got your 98 overs. I go down to see Sport at the other end and explain to him what's going on. Oh, yes, he said, he's, what a good idea. So we agreed to play down the line. Tommy bowls one over, great. And then the next over... He tosses one up and I could see that John was getting agitated. And then he tosses the next one and he went for for a big hole down the ground, missed it totally and it bowled him. <laughs> and in the end, Jesus Christ, boy, 
best you could do. That was it. That was his. And that world record still stands today, doesn't it? Does indeed. Yeah, yeah 98 overs in a match. Incredible. Just to finish off the test match, as you say, it was all over, but then you had the rather pointless occasion of the two overs where Australia came out to, to bat. They were played out and the Ashes were retained by Australia. What was the feeling in the dressing room after that? At the beginning of the test, it was obvious that all Bobby Sensman wanted to do was draw this test. It wasn't in his mind to win it. And, and the way he played ended up being that case. And bear in mind, he came into bat, you know, right for that last 15 minutes. And so he was on the pitch. Apart from that short period between him getting out, um, he was on the pitch for the whole five days. He was. And just to sum up that game, he scored 311 in the first innings, as Australia made 656 for eight declared, and then was not out four in that short second innings. England made 611. And to emphasise your point about the quality of the pitch, that's the only time in Ash's history that both sides have made over 600 in the same match. Now, four of the matches were drawn in the series. Australia won the third test at Headingley to take the series 1-0 and therefore retain the Ashes. Do you think England should have won that series? No, I, I, I don't think we deserved in the end to win it. And then, as you say, you were left out of the side for the final test at the Oval. Were you given a reason? No, they didn't give you reasons when they dropped you. Why do you yes, think it was? I've no idea whatsoever. I was disappointed, but I was more disappointed uh, not to be selected to go abroad. I wasn't selected to go abroad at any time, even the following year when I played four of the tests. Yes, let's have a look at that 65 season in more detail, as it's another pivotal one in your career. You played all three tests against New Zealand at the start of the summer, and you went very well in those tests, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Well, I got four before lunch at Lord's. But starting with the uh, match at Edgbaston, where Fred and I opened the bowling, I was given the option as, as what end I would prefer. I felt embarrassed by that. I felt that Truman was, had earned his spurs, but I, I was told by the skipper if I was, when he told me, you know, which end do you want? And I happened to say to him, oh, I thought Fred would be doing that. He said, are you the skipper or am I? It was so cold, the umpires had their pyjamas on underneath their normal clothes. And there was no one on the ground. I think it was my parents were there. Right. That was about <laughs> it. During the interval, Fred had hit Sutcliffe on the head. And we were called up into the committee room and asked by the New Zealand manager, along with our committee, if we wouldn't bowl bouncers at Bert Sutcliffe again following this test. You can imagine the reaction of Fred Truman, don't you? Yeah, I don't think he'd be up for that, was he? He, he wasn't too happy. <laughs> but I agreed and uh, talked him into it, and which is unprecedented, really, not to attack a batsman. How did you feel about bowling bouncers to players who weren't wearing helmets? I didn't give a damn. If I was able to bowl a good bouncer on a... A wicket which was maybe a bit iffy. That was their problem, not mine. I, I once hit someone very badly, and I was concerned about that. What, I did go to the hospital the, the day after, and, and I know he had 22 stitches in his eye, and I was concerned. That was a, 
a fella called Brian Richardson. That was nasty. I hit him nasty. In that match, actually, I hit three different players. I got booed off the field. And let's return to that New Zealand series. The Lord's Test was a high point for you with those four wickets before lunch on day one. And you were also rooming with Geoffrey Boycott during that match. What was he like as a roommate? Roomies are supposed to be mates. And this particular test, I think uh, you weren't uh, able to play in any other cricket during a test match, but we didn't play on a Sunday. Uh, But Boyks decided that he'd go home on Saturday night and then come back Sunday evening. Well, I was left alone in a hotel on my own. And so I thought I'd import a, a lady to keep me company. When Boycott came back, we happened to be sharing a bath together. He seemed to not enjoy that. Anyway, it wasn't long, about an hour or two, before I got a, a summons to see Alec Bedser. So he called me into his room, and as I entered, he said, I understand you've a woman in your bedroom. He said, it's wrong that you should have a woman. Women sat the strength of bowlers, you know. It's beer for bowlers and women for batsmen. So I said, well, God bless the (laughs) all-rounder. What did you say to Boycott after that? That was pretty mean, wasn't it? Oh, nothing. Nothing, because I knew what he was like. He wasn't a team man. He never would be. I'll tell you something else about that test. I nearly got myself into hot water again. On the Wednesday night, there is a dinner for the players and the selectors. With the previous test, I'd been batting with Kenny Barrington. And Kenny Barrington took all day to get about 120-odd. There was criticism over his slow play, and they dropped him for the Lord's test. I mean, how you can drop Kenny Barrington was beyond me. So anyway, we're in Seoul, is handling the meeting. And he, he says that Kenny is not with us. There was a lot of uh, press about his slow play. So I happened to say, so the press are picking the England team now, are they? I got kicked under the table by Mike Smith, my skipper, and Insol said nothing. When, when you think about it, that might have been one of the reasons he had a go at me. Yeah, let's take a look at the remainder of that summer of cricket with England, as Doug Insole was heavily involved. You were a fixture in the team after the three tests against New Zealand. What happened after that from your perspective? I didn't feel that I was justly dealt with, and in fact, uh, quite the reverse. I played the first three matches against New Zealand. I played the first match against South Africa at Lords. And the second match was at Trent Bridge. And I was picked to play in that game. However, I got what is called a spasm in my hamstring, where the hamstring sort of just collapsed. I was concerned because I didn't want to end up going to Trent Bridge being unable to bowl. And I felt, from my point of view, the best thing to do was to pre-warn the selectors of the spasm in the leg. So they called up Jeff Jones from Glamorgan. We arrived the day before and we have a run out and that was okay. And Peter May, who was 
the selector in charge of that particular match said, well, we'll have another run out in the morning and then you give me your decision. I did that and came off the field and told him I was fit. So he says, okay, you're in the team. Doug Insole arrived from London, who was chairman of selectors. And he walked me around the ground expressing his concern that if I broke down, it would not be good for my career. And in particular, for the selection to Australia at the end of that season. And was I sure I wasn't going to break down? And I said to him, well, I mean, nobody knows whether you're going to break down or not. It was a spasm. And apparently, when muscles get tired, you get these spasms. And I'm all right now. It seems to have cleared. And he still stressed this point of breaking down and leaving us without a bowler. So in the end, he convinced me that I should withdraw from the game, and which I did. Jeff Jones played in my place. That was the last time I ever played for England. So my understanding of this incident is that he persuaded you to stand down for the match so that you could be fully fit for the next match and be fully fit for the tour to Australia. Was that your understanding? Yes, yes. And I wasn't picked to go to Australia. And not only that, I was asked to make myself ready in case there was a problem with the bowlers in Australia, which I did. I actually went to South Africa and I kept in full trim. Well, Lata broke down in Australia and instead of calling me in, Insult called Barry Knight from his own county of Essex to take Lata's place and not me, even though they'd asked me to uh, act a standby. So how do you explain this? What did Doug Insult have against you? Obviously something, but uh, I never found out. Did you ever speak to him again after this and put the question to him? Yes, I did in later, in later years. I sort of forgave him, but I wasn't very happy with him at the time. If you had your time again, what would you do? Would you do the same or would you just play that test? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I would not have advised the selectors, which would have not been the best action. I would have played in the game. The result may have been different. We lost the match quite badly, I believe. Well, it was even worse when you consider that Insole's fellow committee man had cleared me to play. He didn't want me to go to Australia. I never, ever respected Doug Insole for what he did. Following the disappointment of not being picked for the Ashes tour, you secured a coaching position in South Africa that winter. You write in your book about your uneasiness with the apartheid system and also of your friendship and respect for the newspaper editor, Donald Woods. He just, he really was a man I admired immensely for his attitude towards apartheid and everything it stood for. What did you make of the rebel tours to South Africa and would you have ever participated in one? No, is the, first, is the main answer to your question. I would not. That policy was very much against my beliefs. In fact, England were playing in India when this team was announced to play the Rebel Tour. 
Mm-hmm. And David Gower had been asked play, and so had Ian Botham, and both refused. But before David refused, he asked me to talk to him. So I actually travelled from England to Delhi on Christmas Eve to have dinner with Gower. I gave him my opinion. At the end of giving him my opinion, he said, oh, great, because that is in accord with mine. Then travelled back and listened to the Queen's speech on Christmas Day in my own parlour. So you must have been you must have been very close to David Gower for him to value your advice so much. Yeah, we were. We were very close indeed. We still are. Let's turn to one of the great achievements in your cricketing career. What sparked the idea for a cricketers' union? Well, it, it sort of grew up on me. I had my values. It was always there in the game that the players didn't have a voice. At Taunton, we used to have a lunch prepared in our indoor cricket school. And we got fed up with sharing it with other gods creatures like caterpillars, flies, spiders. I said, this is not good enough for us. We've got to eat proper food. I've had a word with the office. They don't seem to want to do anything, so we're going to go on strike. And that's what we did. Well, the club contacted me because the the players decided to vote me as their spokesman. They got a new catering and we got better food. So I thought about it during that winter and I, I decided that, yes, there is room for a representative body to represent the players. And so I, I prepared a letter in 1966 and sent it to all the counties concerned and asked them if they would give me some time to have a chat about the idea of forming some form of association. And so we took it right away through the 1967 season. And during that season, I had a word with Jimmy Hill and asked him, if he'd be prepared to come and talk to our delegates at the inaugural meeting, which he agreed to. And the Daily Express was prepared to pay my all the costs of us having the inaugural meeting in London as long as they could get an exclusive photograph, which I agreed to. Well, what do you think is its legacy today? And how important is it today? It's very important indeed, and it's quite powerful. They're doing a very good job. I I have very little to do with them now. I mean, at at 85, they don't want to know me. Uh, I attend the odd gathering when I can, but I don't have anything to do with their policy, some of which I agree with, some of which I don't. It's a well-run organisation at the moment, so uh, I'm quite pleased with what it's become. And in 2017, an old friend was on hand to help celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Professional Cricketers Association. When, I mean, it was a couple of years ago now, I was asked to host the PCA Awards, but I got the gig again at the Roundhouse in Camden when Fred was given an award, a Lifetime Achievement Award, uh, you know, after 50 years as a sort of founder member and leading light in the early days of the PCA. And I thought that was actually, I was rather proud because you know, here's my father figure being honored for something you know, that goes way back. I've given him a hand up. I've presented him with his awards. 
And he turned into a one-word answer man for the first and one and only time in his life, <laughs> just to sort of as a bit of a wind-up to test me. But I mean, normally speaking, you ask Fred a question, and you can probably sit down for half an hour and have a, you know, have a couple of bottles. <laughs> for once, I found myself, you know, so Fred, you must be very proud. Yep. That it? <laughs> it was, but nonetheless, I was sort of quite emotional about that. You know, I was delighted to be the man to hand him the award. And it's been a delight to have Fred Rumsey and David Gower on this week's show, entertainers and gentlemen to the core. A big thank you to them both. Thanks also to Stephen Chalk for his usual illuminating insights into the ashes days of yore. Is it just coincidence that Doug Insole, a man who himself has dropped four times and appeared in only one match of the 1956 Ashes series, should be the man to deny Fred Rumsey a place on the 65-66 to 66 Ashes tour. I'll leave you to debate the merits and justice of that. And we haven't even begun to tell the story of Doug Insole's role in the Dolavira affair of 1968. We'll come back to that a few more episodes down the line. We thought this episode might run and run, and so it's proved. And there's still so much more to be said. There's plenty of bonus material to enjoy on the website, onceuponatimeintheashes.com. Find out more from Stephen about how a policeman prevented Alan Oakman from joining our One Ashes Test Club. There's more from Fred about his time in South Africa and the changes he'd like to see in cricket if he was still involved with the PCA. And there's plenty more from David Gower, including what playing in the Ashes meant to him, his thoughts on Border, Chapel and Botham, enjoyable days and long nights spent in Barbados during Fred's cricket festivals, rooming with Colin Milburn and ending up in Dave Allen's kitchen. But we'd better leave the last word to Fred. Until next time, this has been Once Upon a Time in the Ashes and I've been Graham Barrett. And a final question for you, Fred. What did playing in the Ashes mean to you? We lost the toss and Australia decided to bat. When we walked down the steps of the pavilion to go onto the ground, I was the last person to leave the pavilion. So as I closed the gate behind me, I mentally said to myself, no one, no one at all can take the three lions away. That was the first thought that went through my mind. And as I walked towards the middle, I thought I should add to that thought that this is an ashes test as well, and it's against our greatest rival.